Hey everyone, welcome to the latest uh, episode of the Challenge Accepted podcast here from us at Arctic Wolf. My name is Ian McShane, I'm VP of Product here. And I'm Adam Murray, I'm the CISO of Arctic Wolf. Adam, do you like F1? You know, it's funny. I did not really like F1. This was years ago. And then I, like so many other people... Oh, you're going to tell the same that, story as me. Yes, that Netflix... Yes, yes, uh, yes, yes. That Netflix show and just absolutely got sucked in, had to learn all the rules, and then I started following, <laughs> and it's just been amazing. And then you add to that... You know, a few years ago when I joined Arctic Wolf and then we made the announcement of, of uh, you know, sponsoring the Oracle Red Bull team, it just made me even more of a fan. So, yeah, that's my story. What about you, Ian? Yeah, it, it, almost exactly the same. Like During during the 90s, showing my age as usual, um, F1 was pretty big in the UK. We had folks like Nigel Mansell, you had Michael Schumacher, some pretty famous um, races, but for some reason it kind of tailed off. And then like you, I think during COVID when the Drive to Survive show was on Netflix, I ran out of things to watch because, just like everyone else and was like, all right, I'll get, I'll get into this. And I was just blown away by how interesting it was, how, how the characters were and almost like the soap opera, like the real, you know, the, the soap opera approach to the storytelling was, was great. And then like you, I started to get really interested in the, the technology side of things. And then of course, when, when we became a sponsor of, of Red Bull Racing, I kind of dived into it even more. Yeah. So I know for me, my, my favorite sports are those where each competition, there's a lot riding on it, right? So mm -hmm. in, in the U S I really like the NFL because, you know, you got 16, 18 games and that's it. Like the, it's not like, you know, baseball here. And I don't know, yeah. maybe cricket's the same way, but there's like a thousand games and you're like, each one <laughs> means so little until you get to the playoffs. Yeah. Even, even the NBA is getting like that with basketball. They're just, mm -hmm. but what I love, and so I love that you have, you know, around 20 races and not only that, but you only have, you know, each team, there's 10 teams, each team has two drivers. You only got to know 20 people who are out there, you yeah. know, and maybe a few others that could be swapped out, but when you can really grok the entire field of play that way and understand how each event is meaningful, that's when, you know, I really, really enjoy sport. So downhill mountain yeah. biking is the same way. There's, you know, a few, you know, uh, events each year. I just really like that. So that's one of the things that sucked me into it. Mm -hmm. And then obviously today, this opportunity to talk to how they're securing everything that they do to make those races happen and to do all the, research and development that they do. I mean, it's just, I can't imagine what that's like. Yeah, there's, and there's so many parallels with, with cybersecurity in general, not least of which every second counts or every minute counts, right? The faster, the faster you are around the track, the more successful you're gonna be. And I think there's some, some interesting parallels to be had there with cybersecurity. So I'm delighted today that we're able to have a, a nice conversation with the, the CISO of Oracle Red Bull Racing, Mr. Mark Hazelton. Hi, Ian, Adam. Thanks for the invitation. No worries. So you are the the, the CISO for Red Bull Racing. Um, but before we get into what that really, really means, one of the things that we like to talk about on this podcast is how folks end up in cybersecurity. So maybe you could give us a, a quick summary of your journey to, to being the CISO of Oracle Red Bull Racing. A, a potted history, yeah, sure. Um, I pretty much fell into working with computers straight on leaving school with a, a Unilever. Um, uh, back in the days when we were putting reel-to-reel -reel tapes on tape decks and taking 12-inch listing paper off printers, uh, and I was there primarily to run around with the tapes and run around with the listing paper. Um, 
I quickly moved into operations with batch scheduling jobs and so on, running a shift pattern, running the, the big old um, HPE, MPE machines. Um, and I, I really quickly realized that there was a world of opportunity for automating things. And I, I taught myself COBOL. And um, we, we started doing a lot of automation of systems and, 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 you know, taking out the mundane tasks where we could. And that enabled me fairly quickly to move from IT operations into development. And I ended up at uh, tender age of 21 looking after the financial ledger systems for uh, a, a pretty significant Unilever company, which often often surprised folks I was talking to at the time. Um and from there, I, I moved into a couple of different development roles, primarily with COBOL. Ended up in a little software house developing code for all sorts of distribution companies and interesting outfits. Um, and as, as part of that uh, exercise, we we turned into a bit of a one-stop shop. So we were replacing old legacy system with with Solaris-based Unix systems. So we'd go in, we'd deliver the kit, we'd install all all of the all of the systems necessary we'd deliver the software and the training and so on and we'd go and bring these companies up to date and as a side effect sort of moving across from software development into um unix systems administration so i had to go out and get a bunch of accreditations in order to um, be able to provide the services that we were uh, provisioning um and that enabled me to to jump after a number of years across into working for uh, my my first jump into motorsport really was with a IndyCar manufacturer, Reynard. And I guess Adam's going to be pretty familiar with Reynard's going around the the, the big ovals and so on in in this, the US. So I was there for four years and I went from um, Unix systems admin and CAD systems admin and ended up my time there as IT manager. Um, and then I, I that all went wonky after the um, sort of the financial markets disintegrated a little bit for IndyCar manufacturer, etc. After nine eleven, and um, I, I did some contracting with the likes of ProDrive and a few other organisations, um, British American Racing and Honda, etc. That were on the on the site that we shared with uh, Reynard. Um, and from that, I got a job working for Jaguar Formula One, looking after various um, systems and things there. Um, and over the and that that was it. I joined joined Jaguar on a three month contract um, to do some review of their IT department. And I've been there ever since. So when Red Bull took over some twenty years ago, um, I've I've been working my way through various positions with the company since then. Um, the, initially looking after and implementing new CAD and ERP systems, then through managing the service desk and race team uh, outfits, a uh, bit of managing the software development team as a stand-in for a year or two. And then finally, um, 10 years ago, we recognized the world was changing and we needed to do more from a cyber perspective. Um, so we started you know, really, really ramping up what we're doing from a cyber perspective. And it's just, it's been nonstop since then. I think the world's become more and more complicated. Uh, I've gone from just me purely focusing on security to a small team of three that manage the governance, risk and compliance side of things um, with you know, the rest of the company helping me 
in most cases. You've been with motorsport for quite some time. I've got so many questions. Number one, like how much of your original Cobalt stuff do you think is still in production? Surprisingly, I think there's there's a fair bit of it that's still uh, still there. I think um, with one of the little software houses, certainly we, we modernized what we were doing with Cobalt and changed all of the sort of user interfaces and stuff like that. So it was it was really rapid for its day what we were doing. We could have one of these small Sonos pizza boxes running uh, a company of three or 400 people with all instantaneous stock control and invoicing, etc. I imagine some of that's still on the go. Yeah, you you know it is. We've had problems in the States, obviously, with, with COBOL out there, and no one knows how to fix it. So uh, we still need those folks. I, I got a question for you, Mark, about your career. I'm just curious. It, you know, it seems like you, you know, you started out in computers and you just kind of took every opportunity that came and and jumped around. And many of us I know who are of, uh, you know, the more mature variety uh, have similar <laughs> similar stories. My my question is, what do you think is different about when you came up through your career to folks that are looking at it today? I think a lot of our uh, listeners to this podcast are, are a little earlier in their career. And then I'm wondering if what you see today, you can apply, you know, how is it different and how is it the same from sort of how you came up through your career to get where you are today? Yeah, sure. Um, I think when I, when I joined, I mean, I was I was taught to read punched cards when I was eight or nine years old, I think. So I had some familiarity with these newfangled computers coming along. Um, when I started working with 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 the mainframes, etc., um, it, it was really early days, and what we were seeing was, uh, we, you know, we we could go and spend a couple of weeks writing code, and replace a whole tranche of manual process, etc. So it was it was um, it, it it was the dawn of a lot of these organisations becoming computerised and. And that, I think, in some ways made things very, very easy. Um, and if you look at the kit and the technology that was available, I think coming up through operations and then into the development and then and having a particular interest, you know, I'd, I'd, when we were taking a machine out, out of um, – out of use, I'd come in at the weekend and I'd sit there writing code and try and break the thing, etc. Trying to work out exactly how this thing worked. You know, how could I make it stand on its head? And I, I sort of think I probably knew a vast amount about the about all of the functions that that hardware and software combined could do for us. Um, and if you look at what we've got now, I think I know so little about the overall <laughs> capabilities of cyber and computers and so on. You know, it, at one time I could have done everything with one particular type of hardware or operating system. And these days, it's a bit like Microsoft Word, isn't it? You know, it's got a thousand functions. We only ever use five buttons. So I, th I think things have changed an awful lot over that time. I think the thing that remains a constant in IT is, is get stuck in. Really, you know, find your niche. I think there's, there's, like my transition from operations through into programming and then sort of systems admin and stuff like that. You, you, you can sort of naturally find your own way. There's so many different opportunities, even in one department. You know, get get your foot under the door, work hard, 
and those opportunities are likely to present themselves. I think, you know, there's there's more diverse opportunity now than ever before. Yeah, I agree. I think I think one of the constants that I've seen has has really been around curiosity. And I think we talked about this one on a previous podcast, Adam, is you know, a lot of folks I work with that they their career path has be, has really been because they've been curious about how things work, how other areas of the business work, how things function, and just really trying to not sit within their comfort zone and, and sit around doing the same thing over and over again and really trying to figure out how things work or how things can be broken, especially in this industry. Yeah, that's what really strikes me is so many people have that story of going in on the weekend and trying to break something or it did break and now I have to learn everything I, I didn't <laughs> yeah, want to know yeah. about whatever yeah. piece of software it was. Yeah. <laughs> so it seems like uh, a lot of your education uh, was on the job, Mark, but did you have any, I, I know you said, you know, you jumped into it straight from school, but did you have any formal education? I know like for Ian and I, there was fewer formal education opportunities back then, but I'm, uh, I'm just curious. Does it, yeah, uh, uh, any formal I, education since maybe? Uh, since indeed. Yeah. Um, at school and me didn't generally get on and I, uh, I think I came out with an A level in art and that was about it really. Um, but I was I was ever ever eager, so I think quite a young age I'd have been working. If it's not uh, not up the local farm, it would be in in a garage nearby, and I was sort of doing MOTs on cars and things like that from the age of fourteen, and and forever, for, as you say, curious about things and and and, and doing work. So I uh, didn't really come out of school with anything in the way of uh, a great. Um, did I even touch a computer at school? I don't, I'm not so sure that I even touched a computer at school, to be honest. But um, when I came out and started working, it was another world. I remember very early on in my time with the Unilever company, going off on a training course, the very first professional training course I'd done, which was all around administering these financial ledgers. And that was a, a real eye-opener to me. And it... And it it was easy. The, the the computer stuff seemed to come really easily. So yeah, from early on, I, I was lucky enough to partake in quite a few training courses, um, and and big group courses. So we had a big migration from one um, manufacturing system to another, um, and that that required all of the developers in the team and a couple of related businesses to get together and go and learn to use the same language, not the same programming language, but the same language around how we're going to do the migration, how we're going to develop, et cetera. And that was a, a real eye-opener for me. Um, um, so I've done all, all sorts of things. In the meantime, I've done some you know, business analysis and various things on different operating systems. In the early 2000s, I did all the um, Solaris certifications for Sun, Sun 2000, et cetera. A uh, bunch of Microsoft stuff, etc. All the project management things, all those usual things. But um, in more recent years, I've gone on and done the um, CISM and the CISSP certifications, mm -hmm. etc. And I, I think that's pretty much where I've where I've um, come to a, a bit of a, a dull stop in terms of training. Not not quite sure where I'd go from that point on, but I need to do training just to get the CPE credits, if nothing else, these days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I hear that. So one of the one of the interesting things for me, if I think about F one in general and you know what you see on TV, is these hulking great 
trucks full of IT equipment. And so in a world where, you know, most organizations are planning to, you know, have a distributed organization or moving things to the cloud or, you know, trying to keep things as off-premise as, as possible, it feels like F1 has the best of both, both worlds or the worst of both worlds in that you've, you know, you've got to ship a lot of stuff around, which is almost on-premise, but it's also got to be, you know, tied into into the cloud somehow. So maybe maybe you could give us a, a good example or a bit of an explanation of what it takes to shift all the, the IT infrastructure around the world and how you manage to secure that on a, you know, traveling circus kind of scale. Yeah. I mean, in a number of years ago when I was managing the race team side of things, I think we did some calculations that said we, the race racks of which I think there were about five at the time needed to run the car. I think they traveled something like 270,000 miles a year. So um, in terms of challenges for that sort of hardware, they're in a box that's, you know, it's shock shock mounted, et cetera, but they're being, they're in, they're in a truck going to the airport. They're being pushed across a concrete runway and all the vibration and so associated with that. And they're at one particular temperature, depending where they are into the hold of an aircraft, do the journey and the same at the other end, temperature changes and, and all of that that go with it. And then they're going into a pretty, um, what can on occasions be a pretty hostile environment in the garage. You know, it's hot, it's dusty, high frequency noise from the car starting up and uh, every type of uh, electrical challenge you can imagine from over voltage and under voltage, brownouts, power cuts, etc. Um it was a, it was a learning curve for us um, as the, the the technology for a long time seemed to be getting um, more more capable, you know, more memory, more CPU, and all that sort of thing. But but at times it seemed also to be getting a bit more delicate. It didn't like that sort of movement. So in in many ways, the the physical transport, etc., was 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 a challenge. Um, these days, we, we don't do so much testing now, so we're quite lucky in that we typically only have one set of equipment flying around the world, and that will be all the race team mm -hmm. environment. Um, whereas a few years ago, we'd have had both race and test kits, and they would be leapfrogging each other from event to event. And, of course, what you get then is a huge challenge around where you're mastering your data. So in, in the early days, we'd have had ISDN lines and, and so on, and we'd be trying to squeeze the, the crucial data back to the factory. Um, and, 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 and you'd have all of these weird synchronization things going on. But with, with modern comms, it's not such an issue. So that's a, a, a much easier thing now. So um, the kit, we, we've, we've, we've managed to find ways to make it pretty stable. You know, we... The, your choice of technology for UPS and things like that can make a huge difference um, and, and how you're supplying the power at circuits and things like that. But uh, we've, we've come to a point where we can make it quite reliable in terms of how we secure it. The, the environment that it goes into is very, very secure. So we can be quite confident that racks of kits in a garage are, are well protected. Um, we're very unlikely to experience unexpected visits from uh, people with ill intent, shall we say, um, moving all of the staff around with all of their laptops, etc. Of course, everything's encrypted and, and what have you. Um, 
and uh, they, they're all very careful with their equipment. All of our staff are great and don't leave things lying around. So uh, it, it's not such a huge challenge to get the kit around these days, but um, you're spinning up a, a data center that any small to medium sized business would be proud of virtually every week you, you build it up over four days it's got to be a hundred percent reliable for the duration of the event and then you tear it down and chuck it in the back of a van and on to the next one so <laughs> it does it does have its you moments sound, you describe it like a roadie like putting a, putting yeah. a band on stage and then chuck it in the back of the van and moving it on to the next it's it's surprisingly similar in places well you you answered my question which was uh, you know, all I think of is trying to secure this is, you know, I've just increased my tax surface or extend my extend my footprint into each one of these different locations physically. You know, so I've got ports sitting out there. I've got devices sitting out there. Who's going to come and try to do something? But it's nice to hear that the security, at least in that inner circle, is tight enough. Yeah. That that's we've, not we've also too tried big to keep it. We've also tried to keep it really simple. So most of the... Um, services will just come directly back to the factory. Um, we don't expose ourselves directly to the internet in in many cases. So, so most of the traffic's bound straight straight back to the factory, and then it proxies out from the factory using existing systems for other other technologies. There are some uh, connections at the circuit for uh, marshalling information and and those sorts of things, but generally we. We try and keep these things as straightforward as we can. Yeah. So, so touching on that, given that you have that kind of connection and everything, you know, can be back at home base, as it were. What are what is the what is the threat landscape like for for an F one team? I'm just I I've got to be thinking, uh, 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 you know, in addition to all of the attacks that everyone worries about, um, there've got to be some interesting uh, peculiarities to being an F one team. I want to hear about corporate espionage as well, right? Yeah, exactly. Economic espionage is, of course, at the top of my list. But I'm just curious what what you think, what you are seeing out there, Mark. Yeah, I think for the uh, the espionage part, that's a, that's a conversation to be had over beers rather than publicly. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's fair. It's <laughs> true, our threat true. landscape is actually really really simple. I like to think um, I've got two main two main threats, and that's uh, everybody inside the building and everybody outside the building. Um, We've seen it change dramatically over the years. Um, Ten years ago, it was all about insider risk. And, of course, over the last, I don't know, six, seven years, we've seen that whole world shift with um, monetization. Of, you know, we used to get spam emails and stuff like that, but and, and people trying to do DDoS for fun and that sort of thing and hackers doing things for fun. But as mm-hmm. the malicious activity has become monetized, obviously, um you're at risk from ransomware and so on. Um, from that perspective, I don't think we're necessarily targeted that specifically, um, but we're as we're at much as risk as any high-tech engineering company, anybody with a footprint on the internet, etc. Um, it seems that our our image on the int- internet doesn't seem to do us that much harm in terms of driving malicious activity towards us. Uh, fingers crossed. Um, over the years, we've had the odd, I'm going to describe them as hobbyists that have caused us some little challenges. But but in general, the biggest risk to us remains falling as collateral damage to one of these other activities going on. So we mm-hmm. 
We see ramp up of um, malicious activity when sanctions are opposed against a country mm-hmm. and those sorts of things. When ge- big geopolitical events um, potentially cause us to see a, a ramp up of traffic. But uh, other than that, we, we've got the odd bit of activity going on. But in general, um, we, we, we don't seem to be that targeted. Um, in terms of uh, industrial espionage, corporate espionage, you know, we we're 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 good friends with most of the teams out there everybody knows everybody that works for the other teams and that makes a bit of a closed loop and and reduces risk the uh, there's a significant financial incentive and regulatory incentive not to copy etc um and of course we put our product on the tally every weekend and yeah. it's it's possible to um you know work out what we're doing with various things um and there's a significant amount of uh, staff movement between the different teams as well, which I think probably levels, levels the playing field mm, a reasonable amount. But but fundamentally, that that isn't a, a, a huge concern for us. Do you do you have a you know across the different race teams? Do you have a you know, shared intelligence kind of function? Do you do you communicate with the other CISOs regularly? The security teams keep in touch about what they're seeing and what might be you know bubbling up from an attack perspective. Typically not. Um, if if there's something that does seem to be really focused on Formula One, or if if one of the teams has had a particular challenge, then that then that does does filter through. But from a day to day day to day perspective, no, we're not all in regular contact. Um, where we we we've seen a couple of our um, direct competitors get compromised with phishing attacks and things like that, then we're always immediately on the phone, of course. Um, but there's there's not that much interaction from a security or indeed an IT perspective across the Formula One teams. There's a a lot of interaction um, around logistics and things like that. So all of the teams are generally working together around um, you know movement of of parts. You know the late late hand baggage movements and all of those sorts of things. There's probably a lot more. Um, well-organized interaction between the teams than the, the the motorsport fans out there watching the races realize. But uh, yeah, it doesn't tend to um, come up to a, a cyber perspective. Now, there, there have been some discussions about uh, putting something together with a, a, a well-known agency um, in the UK, the NCSC. Um, but part of the problem there is that not all of the teams are in the UK. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, and I, I think it's therefore uh, quite a challenge. We couldn't do something with most of the teams, but not all. So I think that uh, makes that sort of thing a little bit difficult. Is there actually a lot of it that's mandated by the, gosh, my acronyms escaping me? Is it the FIA? Um, do they mandate a lot of what you have to do from a baseline of security? Uh, no, not at all. No, it's it's we we we. Um, in, we have various sporting regulations, but from a security perspective, there's there's nothing that drives mm. what we have to do, particularly um, beyond separation of um, it, with with different groups within within our organisation. So, so we describe ourselves these days as a Formula One team. Uh, sorry, as a, as a 
high tech engineering company with a Formula One team, effectively. And we, but we've also got an advanced technology function. We've got powertrains functions, etc. Yeah. Um, and there's some degree of separation required between them, so we don't advantage ourselves. Other than that, we're we're governed by GDPR and so on. Um, and and that is pretty much about it. We've we voluntarily um, used some standards. You know, we've we've looked at ISO twenty seven K, and uh, we're, we're we're generally focusing on the CIS standards, which which happily um, your organisation sort of focuses on as well. So um, other than that, no, we 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 it's all it's all self self derived. Yeah, what really strikes me as interesting about this, Mark, is you know, of course, for those of us who are Formula One fans, we think it's going to be very different for, you know, Oracle Red Bull or other organizations. And then to hear you say it, I've just heard this so many times, you know, we think an industry is really different, but it's really, you know, we're pretty much looking at after and trying to stop and prevent the same attacks that everyone else is dealing with. And then we might have a few peculiarities. The other thing I hear that you say that's really similar is like, you know, there's obviously intense competition between the different organizations, different teams in, in F1, but, you know, the security folks have no problem sharing one with another. And that's another thing. One of the things I love about the security community is our ability to kind of skirt those other, you know, prerogatives that people have for our security prerogative to make sure that we're uh, sharing the information that we should, you know, and as much as appropriate across, you know, different organizations. So I'd love to yeah, hear those things. Absolutely. We see there's no point in inventing the wheel twice, and where we can, we're very happy to share as long as it doesn't uh, risk competitive advantage. Sure, absolutely. Um, yeah, and that's always the line we're trying to. We want to be friendly, but not overly friendly, right? Um, exactly. But so I am curious about how you and your organization try to create. I mean, you talked about that insider threat, which is of course something that you know I think all CISOs worry about. How do you foster that? you know, security conscious culture, like what is the, what are the techniques that Red Bull use? I know it sounds like you got a, you know, a, a really efficient team there. I'm just curious how you do that. And then is there any kind of coordination of that type of culture? Does that culture permeate throughout the different teams at F1 where everyone has sort of a similar idea of the threat you face? Yeah. Um, it's, it's an interesting thing. It's, it's a bit of a double-edged sword, an, an, an awful lot of our, user base are extremely IT literate and they, they, they know what's going on in the outside world. You know, they've all got their fingers on the pulse and, and you don't have to go far to hear about cyber risk, you know. Um, Formula One, given its highly competitive nature, there's a um, an understanding of the need to secure things just ingrained from everybody from day one. Um, so uh, from a physical perspective as well as a, a cyber perspective and so on. And that, that's been pervasive um, throughout my time in motorsport. It was the same before I came to Formula One. You know, in the champ car world, it was the same. Um, and does, that make it, does that make it harder or easier, though, if you've got a lot of IT literate things? And I'm thinking, you know, you get chuckleheads like me going to Adam thinking that I know better ways of securing things than he does. I think we what what we do have is a lot of people that are really laser focused on what they're doing. So um if they can find something that's gonna give them an advantage, um 
if they're going to come up with a piece of software, at, I don't know, 10 o'clock on a Friday night that they need to install in order to do a little bit of analysis that they think is going to win us the race, they want to be able to do that. So we, we have to provide a, um, a, a, a pretty a decent level of flexibility, but then have that sort of um, the midnight break glass thing where we catch up with things after the event and so on. So, so we have a pretty open culture where people are able to do things, but then they come and tell us about it afterwards. Um, in terms of, you know, with, with that focus comes the, um the, the the intent of getting the job done at all costs they're they're just they've just got to get the job done and, and it security can't stand in the way so so where it is a challenge is getting is, we, we always used to have this sort of motto that we'd say in it across the board anything we do is there to make the car go faster and that was a bit of a challenge in it but but you, you can get the principle with security saying we're only going to do stuff that makes the car go faster, that that becomes even more difficult. But um, I think most of our user base sort of gets the gets our approach. So we, we we're not so restrictive that they can't get on and do things. But what we do try and do is 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 stop the worst things and and wrap a little bit of process around some of the other bits where we catch up. Um, because ultimately, if we don't give our engineers a bit of flexibility around what they're doing, they'll find a way to do it. And that it, it, the, the art, them, them, them finding a way to do it and then keeping it under wraps afterwards, etc., can just make things worse. So it's it's definitely a, a double-edged sword. But um, in general, we. I think have very very um, IT literate staff with with very good hygienic habits, cyber habits. Anyway, sounds good. Sounds good. So that's that's been a really interesting look at the the kind of the F one side of things. From from your perspective, Mark, what's the what's the thing you're most passionate about in in cybersecurity? This is this is where I become really dull, and I just it's doing the basics oh. every, every time. Do do, do, do the, the basics. Yeah, do 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 the patching, do the vulnerability awareness, do the you know, make make sure you've got a recent a modern OS in there. Make sure you think about what you're doing. Do a brief risk assessment. Think about the implications, etc. So, um, you know, we we can all add sort of high end technology and so on, but it's all it's all at the wrong end of the uh, process for me. So that that's. Yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of doing the basics and a big fan of upping doing the basics as well because a lot of boards perhaps don't appreciate the difficulty that goes with it, the amount of time, resource, etc. that can um, come along with actually, you know, patching a couple of thousand servers and a couple of thousand <laughs> clients, etc. It can be quite impactful. It's, it's, so. it's easy. Just just patch it. Don't worry about it. You just, yeah, just just hit just hit that button. Hit that button and have it done. Yeah, for us, we we're a twenty four seven operation, and um, outage windows are really difficult for us. So, um, and we we've we've come from a a land where we were getting every possible CPU second out of a machine and utilizing various um, features undocumented features, should we say, in some of the client machines, et cetera, when we're presenting telemetry and so on, um, such that any patching 
10, 10, 15 years ago, any patching would kill the machines and and render everything unusable. And of course, you can't have that when you're trying to get a car out on the track. So (laughs) um, everybody, all of of the engineers have grown up around this thing where updates and changes are bad. Um, And we've... We're currently, with all of our clients, we're patching pretty much real time. It's 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 really good what we're doing now. Um, but that transition from patching maybe, well, we'd sort of patch everything once a year, then we'd run it through our final integration test suite. We'd, we'd run, simulate everything as though it's at the racetrack, and we'd test every single component to make sure it's all stable. Um, and going from that to pretty much patching everything, as soon as patches are available. Yeah, it's been a bit of a culture change. We're, we're, we're not quite there on the server side of things, but we're we're getting there, and we've, we've got good support from the organization and, and so on. But um, the, 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 the patching process and so on is, is getting much more reliable compared to where it was. Um, and we've just got to try and keep that, uh, keep that chain, keep that chain running. Yeah. It's funny, Mark. That's, you took the words right out of our mouth. That's what we say all the time. Do the basics. And it's not, it sounds like, you know, if you say do the basics, it sounds like it might be easy, but uh, the details always get you, but that's where the most value is, we think. So that's, uh, it's interesting Absolutely. to hear the, the same thing. And I hear the same thing from so many different cybersecurity leaders. So um, as I, as I said earlier in the in the podcast, we we do have a lot of uh, you know people who are earlier in their career who listen to this podcast. I'm just curious what what advice would you have for someone like that looking to get into cybersecurity, whether it be you know straight out of school earlier in their their career or someone looking to make a career change. Well, I guess that comes in two parts really. So if it is somebody really early in their career, I, I always tend to direct people towards the help desk or service desk, as I believe they're known these days, um, and get some experience. Get some experience across the organization. Understand what makes the business tick. Um, I really recommend people sort of get away from the standard IT approach of they're just, they're our computers, and you, you're just a user that will use it and so on. It's, it's, it's how do you provision that service for the user, and how do you go around not giving not giving the user necessarily what they ask for but give the user what they want or need and so on and working out that difference so it's understanding the business understanding what drives the business and so on getting that the breadth of experience i think is a is a critical thing to being able to go on to uh move into cyber security and and, and make it uh, make that transition sensible um i think for somebody later on in their career perhaps focus on a particular area in cyber security of which there are many you know do you want to go into management do you want to go into threat hunting do you want to go into pen testing or red teaming and so on it's 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 it's, it's still a relatively new industry i guess and the, and the, the roles are constantly evolving so um Pick the thing that works for you. Focus on that rather than going um, for something too broad and perhaps not making it. Focus all of your time and effort on on one area. Get your foot in the door. See if you like that particular thing. And then maybe you can move laterally from there. Yeah, that's that's great. Totally agree. Yeah, yeah. 
a little bit of bias, but yeah, I, I feel the same way about tech support as well, because that's where I came from. And it exposed me not just to the technology, but the human side of things and having way more, way more empathy for not only the end user, but also for the folks that work in the, you know, the 24 seven misery that can be tech support, right? Absolutely. I mean, ultimately, it's we're there for the users. So, you know, all of the services got to be there for the, the, the whole point is for them. So uh, I think that's, that's a really good place to start the focus. Although a number of my users might not agree that that's how I focus <laughs> things. But, uh, you know, there's, there's always one or two outliers. What is it they say about the CISO role? You can't please anybody? Or is it you can't please everybody? <laughs> it's one of the two, right? You can't please somebody. It's, it's something like that, yeah. Brilliant. Well, listen, Mark, it's been it's been really interesting hearing you know how you and your team secure a world champion F one team. So thanks so much for the the insight, and um, really appreciate you being here today. No problem. Thanks for the invite. Good to meet you, Adam. Yeah, thank you, Mark. It's been great. Yeah. So so everyone listening, be sure to to like and, and share and subscribe on the, the podcast platform of your choice. Thanks again to to Mark Hazelton. Um, any last words from you, Adam, today? No, I'm good. That was fascinating. I just love, uh, I love to hear that even though we may be in very different organizations, we're pretty much all fighting the same fight, the same kind of problems. And that really makes me feel like uh, we can do it. We can make this better. So thanks, Mark. Thanks, Ian.